This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny Bullfinch's Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 33 Camilla Evander, Nisus and Aurelius, Mesentius, Turnus. Aeneas, having parted from the Sibyl and rejoined his fleet, coasted along the shores of Italy, and cast anchor in the mouth of the Tiber. The poet, having brought his hero to this spot, the destined termination of his wanderings, invokes his muse to tell him the situation of things at that eventful moment. Latinus, third in descent from Saturn, ruled the country. He was now old and had no male descendant, but had one charming daughter, Lavinia, who was sought in marriage by many neighboring chiefs, one of whom, Turnus, king of the Rutulians, was favored by the wishes of her parents. But Latinus had been warned in a dream by his father, Faunus, that the destined husband of Lavinia should come from a foreign land. From that union should spring a race destined to subdue the world. Our readers will remember that, in the conflict with the harpies, one of those half-human birds had threatened the Trojans with dire sufferings. In particular, she predicted that, before their wandering ceased, they should be pressed by hunger to devour their tables. The sportant now came true, for, as they took their scanty meal, seated on the grass, the men placed their hard biscuit on their laps, and put thereon whatever their gleanings in the woods supplied. Having dispatched the latter, they finished by eating the crusts. Seeing which, the boy Eulus said playfully, See, we are eating our tables. Aeneas caught the words and accepted the omen. All hail, promised land, he exclaimed. This is our home, this our country. He then took measures to find out who were the present inhabitants of the land, and who their rulers. A hundred chosen men were sent to the village of Latinus, bearing presents in a request for friendship and alliance. They went, and were favorably received. Latinus immediately concluded that the Trojan hero was no other than the promised son-in-law, announced by the oracle. He cheerfully granted his alliance, and sent back the messengers, mounted on steeds from his stables, and loaded with gifts and friendly messages. Juno, seeing things go thus prosperously for the Trojans, felt her old animosity revive, summoned Alecto from Erebus, and sent her to stir up discord. Fury first took possession of the queen, Amata, 
and roused her to oppose in every way the new alliance. Alecto then speeded to the city of Turnus, and assuming the form of an old priestess, informed him of the arrival of the foreigners, and of the attempts of their prince to rob him of his bride. Next, she turned her attention to the camp of the Trojans. There, she saw the boy, Ulysses, and his companions amusing themselves with hunting. She sharpened the scent of the dogs, and led them to rouse up from the thicket a tame stag, the favorite of Sylvia, the daughter of Tyreus, the king's herdsman. A javelin from the hand of Ulysses wounded the animal, and he had only strength left to run homewards, and died at his mistress's feet. Her cries and tears roused her brothers and the herdsmen, and they, seizing whatever weapons came to hand, furiously assaulted the hunting party. These were protected by their friends, and the herdsmen were finally driven back with the loss of two of their number. These things were enough to rouse the storm of war, and the queen, Turnus, and the peasants all urged the old king to drive the strangers from the country. He resisted as long as he could, but finding his opposition unavailing, finally gave way and retreated to his retirement. Opening the Gates of Janus It was the custom of the country, when war was to be undertaken, for the chief magistrate, clad in his robes of office, with solemn pomp, to open the gates of the temple of Janus, which were kept shut as long as peace endured. His people now urged the old king to perform that solemn office, but he refused to do so. While they contested, Juno herself, descending from the skies, smote the doors with irresistible force and burst them open. Immediately the whole country was in a flame. The people rushed from every side, breathing nothing but war. Turnus was recognized by all as leader. Others joined as allies, chief of whom was Mezentius, a brave and able soldier, but of detestable cruelty. He had been the chief of one of the neighboring cities, but his people drove him out. With him was joined his son, Lausus, a generous youth, worthy of a better sire. Camilla Camilla, the favorite of Diana, a huntress and warrior after the fashion of the Amazons, came with her band of mounted followers, including a select number of her own sex, and ranged herself on the side of Turnus. This maiden had never accustomed her fingers to the distaff or the loom, but had learned to endure the toils of war, and in speed to outstrip the wind. It seemed as if she might run over the standing corn without crushing it, or over the surface of the water without dipping her feet. Camilla's history had been singular from the beginning. Her father, Metabas, driven from his city by civil discord, 
carried with him in his flight his infant daughter. As he fled through the woods, his enemies in hot pursuit, he reached the bank of the river Amazinus, which, swelled by rains, seemed to the bar a passage. He paused for a moment, then decided what to do. He tied the infant to his lance with wrappers of bark, and poising the weapon in his upraised hand, thus addressed Diana. Goddess of the woods, I consecrate this maid to you. Then hurled the weapon with its burden to the opposite bank. The spear flew across the roaring water. His pursuers were already upon him, but he plunged into the river and swam across, and found the spear with the infant safe on the other side. Henceforth he lived among the shepherds and brought up his daughter in woodland arts. While a child, she was taught to use the bow and throw the javelin. With her sling, she could bring down the crane or the wild swan. Her dress was a tiger's skin. Many mothers sought her for a daughter-in-law, but she continued faithful to Diana and repelled the thought of marriage. Evander Such were the formidable allies that ranged themselves against Aeneas. It was night, and he lay stretched in sleep on the bank of the river under the open heavens. The god of the stream, Father Tiber, seemed to raise his head above the willows, and to say, O goddess-born, destined possessor of the Latin realms, this is the promised land, here is to be your home, here shall terminate the hostility of the heavenly powers if only you faithfully persevere. There are friends not far distant. Prepare your boats and row up my stream. I will lead you to Evander, the Arcadian chief. He has long been at strife with Turnus and the Rutulians, and is prepared to become an ally of yours. Rise, offer your vows to Juno, and deprecate her anger. When you have achieved your victory, then think of me. Aeneas woke and paid immediate obedience to the friendly vision. He sacrificed to Juno and invoked the god of the river and all his tributary fountains to lend their aid. Then, for the first time, a vessel filled with armed warriors floated on the stream of the Tiber. The river smoothed its waves and bade its current flow gently, while, impelled by the vigorous strokes of the rowers, the vessels shot rapidly up the stream. About the middle of the day they came in sight of the scattered buildings of the infant town, where, in after times, the proud city of Rome grew, whose glory reached the skies. By chance the old king, Evander, was that day celebrating annual solemnities in honor of Hercules and all the gods. Pallas, his son, and all the chiefs of the little commonwealth stood by. When they saw the tall ship gliding onward near the wood, they were alarmed at the sight and rose from the tables. 
but Pallas forbade the solemnities to be interrupted, and seizing a weapon, stepped forward to the river's bank. He called aloud, demanding who they were, and what their object. Aeneas, holding forth an olive branch, replied, We are Trojans, friends to you, and enemies to the Rutulians. We seek Evander, and offer to join our arms with yours. Pallas, in amaze at the sound of so great a name, invited them to land, and when Aeneas touched the shore, he seized his hand, and held it long in friendly grasp. Proceeding through the wood, they joined the king and his party, and were most favorably received. Seats were provided for them at the tables, and their repast proceeded. Infant Rome When the solemnities were ended, all moved towards the city. The king, bending with age, walked between his son and Aeneas, taking the arm of one or the other of them, and with much variety of pleasing talk, shortening the way. Aeneas, with delight, looked and listened, observing all the beauties of the scene, and learning much of heroes renowned in ancient times. Evander said, These extensive groves were once inhabited by fauns and nymphs, and a rude race of men who sprang from the trees themselves, and had neither laws nor social culture. They knew not how to yoke the cattle, nor raise a harvest, nor provide from present abundance for future want, but browsed like beasts upon the leafy boughs, or fed voraciously on their hunted prey. Such were they, when Saturn, expelled from Olympus by his sons, came among them, and drew together the fierce savages, formed them into society, and gave them laws. Such peace and plenty ensued that men ever since have called his reign the Golden Age, but by degrees far other times succeeded, and the thirst of gold and the thirst of blood prevailed. The land was a prey to successive tyrants, till fortune and resistless destiny brought me hither, an exile from my native land, Arcadia. Having thus said, he showed him the Tarpeian rock, and the rude spot then overgrown with bushes, where, in after times, the capital rose in all its magnificence. He next pointed to some dismantled walls, and said, Here stood Janiculum, built by Janus, and there Saturnia, the town of Saturn. Such discourse brought them to the cottage of poor Evander, whence they saw the lowing herds roaming over the plain, where now the proud and stately forum stands. They entered, and a couch was spread for Aeneas, well stuffed with leaves and covered with the skin of a Libyan bear. Next morning, awakened by the dawn and the shrill song of birds beneath the eaves of his low mansion, old Evander rose. Clad in a tunic, and a panther's skin thrown over his shoulders, with sandals on his feet, and his good sword girded to his side, he went forth to seek his guest. Two mastiffs followed him, his whole retinue and bodyguard. He found the hero, attended by his faithful Achates, and, Pallas soon joining them, the old king spoke thus. 
illustrious Trojan, it is but little we can do in so great a cause. Our state is feeble, hemmed in on one side by the river, on the other by the Rutulians. But I propose to ally you with a people numerous and rich, to whom fate has brought you at the propitious moment. The Etruscans hold the country beyond the river. Mazentius was their king, a monster of cruelty, who invented unheard-of torments to gratify his vengeance. He would fasten the dead to the living, hand to hand, and face to face, and leave the wretched victims to die in that dreadful embrace. At length the people cast him out, him and his house. They burned his palace and slew his friends. He escaped and took refuge with Turnus, who protects him with arms. The Etruscans demand that he shall be given up to deserved punishment, and would ere now have attempted to enforce their demand. But their priests restrain them, telling them that it is the will of heaven that no native of the land shall guide them to victory, and that their destined leader must come from across the sea. They have offered the crown to me, but I am too old to undertake such great affairs, and my son is native-born, which precludes him from the choice. You equally, by birth and time of life, and fame in arms, pointed out by the gods, have but to appear to be hailed at once as their leader. With you I will join Pallas, my son, my only hope and comfort. Under you he shall learn the art of war, and strive to emulate your great exploits. Then the king ordered horses to be furnished for the Trojan chiefs, and Aeneas, with a chosen band of followers, and Pallas accompanying, mounted, and took the way to the Etruscan city, having sent back the rest of his party in the ships. Aeneas and his band safely arrived at the Etruscan camp, and were received with open arms by Tarkin and his countrymen. Nisus and Aurelius In the meanwhile, Turnus had collected his bands, and made all necessary preparation for the war. Juno sent Iris to him with a message, inciting him to take advantage of the absence of Aeneas, and surprise the Trojan camp. Accordingly, the attempt was made, but the Trojans were found on their guard, and having received strict orders from Aeneas not to fight in his absence, they lay still in their entrenchments, and resisted all the efforts of the Rutulians to draw them into the field. Night coming on, the army of Turnus, in high spirits at their fancied superiority, feasted and enjoyed themselves, and finally stretched themselves on the field and slept secure. In the camp of the Trojans, things were far otherwise. There all was watchfulness and anxiety and impatience for Aeneas's return. Nisus stood guard at the entrance of the camp, and Aurelius, a youth distinguished above all in the army for graces of person and fine qualities, was with him. These two were friends and brothers in arms. Nisus said to his friend, Do you perceive what confidence and carelessness the enemy display? Their lights are few and dim, 
and the men seem all oppressed with wine or sleep. You know how anxiously our chiefs wish to send to Aeneas, and to get intelligence from him. Now I am strongly moved to make my way through the enemy's camp, and to go in search of our chief. If I succeed, the glory of the deed will be reward enough for me, and if they judge the service deserves anything more, let them pay it to you. Aurelius, all on fire with the love of adventure, replied, Would you then, Nisus, refuse to share your enterprise with me? And shall I let you go into such danger alone? Not so my brave father brought me up, nor so have I planned for myself when I joined the standard of Aeneas, and resolved to hold my life cheap in comparison with honor. Nisus replied, I doubt it not, my friend, but you know the uncertain event of such an undertaking, and whatever may happen to me, I wish you to be safe. You are younger than I, and have more of life in prospect. Nor can I be the cause of such grief to your mother, who has chosen to be here, in the camp, with you, rather than stay and live in peace with the other matrons in Acestus' city. Aurelius replied, Say no more. In vain you seek arguments to dissuade me. I am fixed in the resolution to go with you. Let us lose no time. They called the guard, and committing the watch to them, sought the general's tent. They found the chief officers in consultation, deliberating how they should send notice to Aeneas of their situation. The offer of the two friends was gladly accepted, themselves loaded with praises, and promised the most liberal rewards in case of success. Eulus especially addressed Aurelius, assuring him of his lasting friendship. Aurelius replied, I have but one boon to ask. My aged mother is with me in the camp. For me she left the Trojan soil, and would not stay behind with the other matrons at the city of Acestus. I go now without taking leave of her. I could not bear her tears, nor set at now her entreaties. But do thou, I beseech you, comfort her in her distress. Promise me that I shall go more boldly into whatever dangers may present themselves. Gilles and the other chiefs were moved to tears, and promised to do all his request. Your mother shall be mine, said Gilles, and all that I have promised to you shall be made good to her, if you do not return to receive it. The two friends left the camp, and plunged at once into the midst of the enemy. They found no watch, no sentinels posted, but, all about, the sleeping soldiers strewn on the grass and among the wagons. The laws of war at that early day did not forbid a brave man to slay a sleeping foe, and the two Trojans slew, as they passed, such of the enemy as they could, without exciting alarm. In one tent, Aurelius made prize of a helmet, brilliant with golden plumes. They had passed through the enemy's ranks without being discovered, but now suddenly appeared a troop directly in front of them, which, under Volsens, their leader, were approaching the camp. The glittering helmet of Aurelius caught their attention, and Volsens hailed the two, and demanded who and whence they were. They made no answer, but plunged into the wood. 
the horsemen scattered in all directions to intercept their flight. Nisus had eluded pursuit and was out of danger, but the realist being missing, he turned back to seek him. He again entered the wood and soon came within sound of voices. Looking through the thicket, he saw the whole band surrounding Aurelius, with noisy questions. What should he do? How extricate the youth, or would it be better to die with him? Raising his eyes to the moon, which now shone clear, he said, Goddess, favor my effort. And aiming his javelin at one of the leaders of the troop, struck him in the back, and stretched him on the plain with a death-blow. In the midst of their amazement, another weapon flew, and another of the party fell dead. Volsens, the leader, ignorant whence the darts came, rushed sword in hand upon Aurelius. "'You shall pay the penalty of both,' he said, and would have plunged the sword into his bosom, when Nisus, who, from his concealment, saw the peril of his friend, rushed forward exclaiming, "'Twas I! Twas I! Turn your swords against me, Rutulians! I did it! He only followed me as a friend!' While he spoke, the sword fell, and pierced the comely bosom of Aurelius. His head fell over on his shoulder, like a flower cut down by the plough. Nisus rushed upon Volsens, and plunged his sword into his body, and was himself slain on the instant by numberless blows. Mesentius Aeneas, with his Etrurian lies, arrived on the scene of action, in time to rescue his beleaguered camp. And now, the two armies, being nearly equal in strength, the war began in good earnest. We cannot find space for all the details, but must simply record the fate of the principal characters whom we have introduced to our readers. The tyrant Mesentius, finding himself engaged against his revolting subjects, raged like a wild beast. He slew all who dared to withstand him, and put the multitude to flight wherever he appeared. At last he encountered Aeneas, and the armies stood still to see the issue. Mesentius threw his spear, which, striking Aeneas's shield, glanced off and hit Anther. He was a Grecian by birth, who had left Argos, his native city, and followed Evander into Italy. The poet says of him, with simple pathos, which has made the words proverbial, he fell, unhappy, by a wound intended for another, looked up at the skies, and dying remembered sweet Argos. Aeneas now, in turn, hurled his lance. It pierced the shield of Mesentius, and wounded him in the thigh. Lausus, his son, could not bear the sight, but rushed forward and interposed himself, while the followers pressed round Mesentius and bore him away. Aeneas held his sword suspended over Lausus, and delayed to strike, but the furious youth pressed on, and he was compelled to deal the fatal blow. Lausus fell, and Aeneas bent over him in pity. Hapless youth, he said, what can I do for you, worthy of your praise? Keep those arms in which you glory, and fear not, but that your body shall be restored to your friends, and have due funeral honors. So saying, 
he called the timid followers and delivered the body into their hands. Mazentius, meanwhile, had been borne to the riverside and washed his wound. Soon the news reached him of Lossus's death, and rage and despair supplied the place of strength. He mounted his horse and dashed into the thickest of the fight, seeking Aeneas. Having found him, he rode round him in a circle, throwing one javelin after another, while Aeneas stood, fenced with his shield, turning every way to meet them. At last, after Mezentius had three times made the circuit, Aeneas threw his lance directly at the horse's head. It pierced his temples, and he fell, while a shout from both armies rent the skies. Mezentius asked no mercy, but only that his body might be spared the insults of his revolted subjects, and be buried in the same grave with his son. He received the fatal stroke, not unprepared, and poured out his life and his blood together. Paulus Camilla Turnus While these things were doing in one part of the field, in another Turnus encountered the youthful Paulus. The contest between champions so unequally matched could not be doubtful. Paulus bore himself bravely, but fell by the lance of Turnus. The victor almost relented when he saw the brave youth lying dead at his feet and spared to use the privilege of a conqueror in despoiling him of his arms. The belt only, adorned with studs and carvings of gold, he took and clasped round his own body. The rest he remitted to the friends of the slain. After the battle there was a cessation of arms for some days, to allow both armies to bury their dead. In this interval Aeneas challenged Turnus, to decide the contest by single combat, but Turnus evaded the challenge. Another battle ensued, in which Camilla, the virgin warrior, was chiefly conspicuous. Her deeds of valor surpassed those of the bravest warriors, and many Trojans and Etruscans fell pierced with her darts or struck down by her battle-axe. At last, an Etruscan named Arens, who had watched her long, seeking for some advantage, observed her pursuing a flying enemy, whose splendid armor offered a tempting prize. Intent on the chase, she observed not her danger, and the javelin of Arons struck her and inflicted a fatal wound. She fell and breathed her last in the arms of her attendant maidens. But Diana, who beheld her fate, suffered not her slaughter to be unavenged. Arons, as he stole away, glad but frightened, was struck by a secret arrow, launched by one of the nymphs of Diana's train, and died ignobly and unknown. At length, the final conflict took place between Aeneas and Turnus. Turnus had avoided the contest as long as he could, but at last, impelled by the ill success of his arms and by the murmurs of his followers, he braced himself to the conflict. It could not be doubtful. On the side of Aeneas were the express decree of destiny, the aid of his goddess mother at every emergency, an impenetrable armor fabricated by Vulcan at her request for her son. Turnus, on the other hand, was deserted by his celestial allies, Juno having been expressly forbidden by Jupiter to assist him any longer. 
Turnus threw his lance, but it recoiled, harmless, from the shield of Aeneas. The Trojan hero then threw his, which penetrated the shield of Turnus, and pierced his thigh. Then Turnus's fortitude forsook him, and he begged for mercy. And Aeneas would have given him his life, but at the instant his eye fell on the belt of Pallas, which Turnus had taken from the slaughtered youth. Instantly his rage revived, and exclaiming, Pallas immolates thee with this blow, he thrust him through with his sword. Here the poem of the Aeneid closes, and we are left to infer that Aeneas, having triumphed over his foes, obtained Lavinia for his bride. Tradition adds that he founded his city, and called it after her name, Lavinium. His son Iolus founded Alba Longa, which was the birthplace of Romulus and Remus, and the cradle of Rome itself. There is an allusion to Camilla in those well-known lies of Pope, in which, illustrating the rule that the sound should be an echo to the sense, he says, When Ajax strives some rock's vast weight to throw, the line too labors and the words move slow. Not so when swift Camilla scours the plain, flies over them bending corn or skims along the main. Essay on Criticism End of chapter 33